0: today's scripture comes from luke two twenty-one to 40. on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child he was named jesus the name the angel had given him before he was conceived when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of moses joseph and mary took him to jerusalem to present him to the lord as it is written in the law of the lord every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the lord anna the daughter of penuel of the tribe of asher she was very old she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. she never left the temple but worshiped night and day fasting and praying coming up to them at that very moment she gave thanks to god and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of jerusalem when mary and joseph had done everything required by the law of the lord They returned to galilee to their own town of nazareth and the child grew and became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace that god was was on him the grace of god was on him
1: one of the great hitters in baseball history rogers hornsby once said people ask me what i do in winter when there's no baseball i'll tell you what i do i stare out the window and wait for spring But truthfully, there is something that we can do that's a little better than simply waiting. And since the 4th century, Christians of many traditions have set aside a period of time leading up to Easter for focused spiritual development. It's a season known as Lent. But before we get to Lent, we have Mardi Gras, right? This giant party that is thrown and people get all dressed up and go crazy. Now, of course, we don't do that in the church. We do something almost as exciting. We eat pancakes, and uh, as Graham mentioned, we will be doing that on Tuesday night. If you haven't joined us for this, it's great. Just come out and join some good, some good food and, uh, with some good friends. And the idea is that it, Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. I mean, we're going to eat all this unhealthy food. We're going to do all this unhealthy stuff because we're about to head in to a long period of remembrance and reflection and penance. So we're going to head into this season, so let's have this big party right before we do that. So Lent is a 40-day period that starts on Ash Wednesday, which is in, this year's March the 6th, and it ends the Saturday before Easter, which is all the way April 20th. Now, if you're doing quick math, you're like, eh, that's a little more than 40 days, and that is because Sundays don't count. Sundays are not fast days, so we always get to celebrate on Sunday, uh, so that's why the, the numbers don't add up. But what is the point of this Lent? Well, really two things. For those who you would say that you're maybe on the outside kind of looking in, you're thinking, you know, I'm not really sure about Christianity, this would be a time of spiritual consideration where you might say, you know what, I'm going to be focused, I'm going to have some focused attention during this season and really seek, uh, seek some answers and some direction. For those who would consider themselves part of the Christian community, this would be a time where we think about what is it that we've committed ourselves to, what is this life that we're living, and can we renew that commitment to faith? Now, traditionally, people choose to give something up during this period to to illustrate their devotion to following Christ. And so you might decide to give up junk food. You might decide to give up Netflix. You might even decide to give up coffee or something like this. And again, as a reminder, before you get too crazy, Sundays are exempt. It's like this day of celebration every seven days. It's wonderful. Well, what's the point of this? Why do we do this? Is it to make ourselves more spiritual? Well, in Lent, by denying ourselves something that we enjoy, we discipline our, our will so that we're not ruled by our pleasures. We teach ourselves to say no a little bit. But you might say, well, what's so bad about Netflix? What's so bad about chips? Well, I guess, it, first of all, depends what show you're watching, but nothing. The point is not to give up something bad. You don't have to wait till Lent. If there's something bad in your life, if there is like a vice or some terrible thing that's happening in your life, just give it up now. Don't wait for for Lent to start. The point is to give up something that's not inherently bad, but something that you will miss, because it's not really about what you give up, it's what you gain. What do you notice in the absence of this thing that is a regular part of your life? Richard Foster writes that fasting helps us keep our balance in life, so giving something up, noticing its absence, it helps us to keep balance I was reading an article this week. Actually, it was in the New York Times. Uh, One of our mission partners, Faith Tech, uh, an initiative that they do called the Digital Sabbath was mentioned in this article. And the idea is that once a week, you don't use any technology at all. And they're challenging people, specifically people in the tech sector, to do this. Can you just give up a day a week for a period of time? Maybe it's a month or three months or whatever it is. And just notice what happens in the absence of that technology. So when we give things up, we create space for something new. When we deny ourselves things of lesser priority, it shows us that they're not actually necessary, and then we can begin to focus on the things that are necessary. So, I would encourage you to participate this year in Lent, as long as it is part of a greater commitment, not to do religious things, but to know God. And to help you, I'm going to invite Helen to come on up, and she's going to give an example of one thing that our staff is going to be hosting during this season, to help during the season of Lent.
2: So, during the Lenten season, we're going to open up some space at 22 Willow. On Wednesday, it's going to be in the chapel, and for the rest of the time, it'll be in the sanctuary. Uh, It's going to be every Wednesday at noon, and we're just creating space for people to come in and spend some time together uh, going through this Lenten journey. We're calling these these sessions Fast Food. Get it? No one gets it. Okay, fast food. Okay, it's a rough crowd. Um, okay, um, so we're inviting you to fast from your lunch on Wednesday and come and take it, uh, enjoy a different kind of food over the lunch hour. I wanna say that I know the lunch hour isn't available for everyone, um, but we do encourage you to come if you can. You don't have to come to all of them. If you can't stay the full hour, just come and stay as long as you can. Um, If you have young children, we recognize that that's a bit of a hurdle. So um, if you want to get creative and share babysitting, we can open the nursery. Uh, We'll let you figure that out among yourselves. Um, So we're going to have a variety of practices, um, Lectio Divina, contemplative prayer, some readings, um, and other expressions, honestly, that we decide along the way. But what we want to do is create a space to recognize this season in the church calendar and to walk together in prayer and contemplation. I think that in a community like Elevation, there's a wide range of practice around Lent from some people who would never have experienced or practiced Lent before to people who have done it with some level of success or failure. Um, And so we invite you to come wherever you're coming from and no matter where you sit in relation to Lent and just experience with us together as as we make a journey to the cross.
1: Thanks, Helen. And just for the record, when you tell a joke and they don't respond, it's not because they don't get it, it's because they don't think you're funny. <laughs> I have plenty of experience with that. Plenty of experience. We'll see if I can get through a sermon without that experience this morning. All right, so uh, where are we going during Lent on Sunday mornings? We're going to be walking with Jesus from the very start of his journey to the cross. And what we're going to be doing is paying close attention Uh, To some things that we might not have noticed before. Because in the very uh, early accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, we actually see uh, instances that point us to the cross, which is where we'll end up at the end of the season of Lent. So, our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 2, and it begins telling us that on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. So, uh, interesting trivia information here. For the first eight days of the baby's life, he didn't actually have a name. What did Mary call him during those days? Hey, you, it, baby, I don't know. According to YeshuaInContext.com, the five most popular baby boy names in Bethlehem in the year zero were Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, and John. Jesus came in at number six, but according to Luke, he wasn't given the name Jesus because it was popular, but because it was the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. So, the next thing that happens, we're told, is that after the day of purification had come, so uh, a Jewish woman would have to wait 40 days in order to be considered pure after childbirth, and so after that 40-day period had passed, um, they went to the temple, and Jesus' young parents offered a sacrifice at the temple in keeping with the law, as we discussed in Leviticus a few months ago. The offering that they gave was a pair of doves or two young pigeons, And just a bit of a side note here, that an offering of birds was intended for only the poorest of worshippers. And so this is a reminder here for us that at the beginning of Jesus' life, that he was born into a poor family. A family that could only afford the, the minimal offering to be made as a sacrifice when their child was born. Now, the first time that Luke mentions the temple is when Zechariah had a vision from an angel Gabriel informing him that his wife Elizabeth would give birth to a son in her old age. And then in chapter 2, the narrative cycles back to the temple where we meet a man named Simeon who had been told that he would not die until he he had seen the Messiah. We don't know how old he was, We don't know how long he had been waiting, but when he prays, now dismiss your servant in peace, it's fair to assume that he'd been waiting a long time. Like, I've been waiting for so long, just now, let me die, please. I've seen the baby. He'd been waiting a long time. Frederick Buechner says that faith is a lump in the throat. Faith is less a position on than movement toward, less a sure thing than a hunch. Faith is waiting. And Simeon had been waiting A very long time, but he wasn't waiting alone. The Holy Spirit is mentioned three times in quick succession in this passage. A common technique in ancient rhetoric used to create emphasis. The Holy Spirit was upon him, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. These first two chapters of Luke's gospel are filled with references to the activity of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people, foreshadowing a pattern of of what is yet to come, and we're going to dive into that next week. But I just wanted to mention that in the context of this morning's reading already. Well, at the end of the day, it was the Holy Spirit who revealed Jesus, directing Simeon to the family, which resulted in an outburst of praise to God. "'Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace.' for my eyes have seen your salvation. But how is that possible? He was holding a six-week-old baby. How could he see in this baby, in this poor family, the salvation of his people? How could he see everything that God had promised, the Messiah that he'd been waiting for in the life of this little baby? But as he goes on to say, this revelation wasn't just for his own benefit, so he could end his period of waiting at the temple. Far from it. My eyes have seen your salvation, he says, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In many ways, Jesus was not only Joseph and Mary's child, but the whole world's child. He didn't just bring peace to Simeon, he brings peace to all of us. And it wasn't just Simeon who was waiting either. Enter Anna, a prophet, an older woman. Now, if you heard what was read just earlier, and if you think that Helen is asking for too much for you to skip a meal and join us here at 22 Willow to pray once a week during Lent, think about this old widow, Anna, who never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. All right? So showing up for an hour once a week over Lent. It's not that much, really. We don't know exactly what she said. The Bible doesn't record her words, but she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And this part of the story concludes with the family's return to Nazareth, where Jesus grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, how often do a person's early years foreshadow the lives they will live as an adult? Well, this morning, today, is my son Jude's 14th birthday. So, I wanted to just point that out. And I thought that I would actually use Jude as an example of how the things that you begin to see early in a person's life foreshadow who they will become, all right? So, I'll take you on a little photo history here. Um, So this is a picture of the Mallow family band. Um, I don't know what, circa 2005 or no, probably 2007, something like that. And so here you see, like, Owen's on the drums, Sophie's on the keys, and Jude is rocking this guitar. There's a little close-up of him here. And so, again, this early snapshot from his life, like, did that mean anything? Well, yes, he continues to love playing guitar. So there, this early sign foreshadowing who he was going to become. All right, let's take a look. What's next? Oh, yes. Jude is always a mama's boy when he was little, and he still is a mama's boy. He's have a picture of them hanging out uh, on vacation together. So they still are. So see, again, a little slap shot. All right, what else do we have next? Jude loved fishing when he was little, and he still loves fishing. He's always the first one, if we're camping or at a cottage or anything like that, he's the first one up fishing in the morning. He loved baseball when he was little, and he still loves baseball. He's even learned to put his hat on properly and put the glove on the right hand. Like it, so it started off slow, but he's, but he's learned. And one more here. When Jude was little... He did not like being told what he could and couldn't do. He didn't like when he couldn't get his way. I don't have a picture for the second one, but you're just going to have to trust me that he still doesn't like being told what to do. Now, we don't have quite as much to to go on when it comes to Jesus. When when we think about Jesus as a a child, as an infant, we don't really know much about what he was like. We have one little snapshot from when he was 12. He went to the temple. He was talking to people. So there was this little bit of a snapshot that maybe he's going to be really intelligent or maybe he'll he'll have really good insight. There was a little snapshot that we gave. But most of it, we we just don't have have enough insight that. And yet... While the Gospels are filled with this powerful and uplifting stories of Jesus, right from the very start, his life was pointed toward the cross. And so while we can't look back at a lot of examples from his childhood, we can look at examples from the very beginning of his public ministry and see the intention that was there right from the beginning. Simeon had some great things to say about Jesus, which I've read already, but the nude wasn't all rosy. And so I want to go back to chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now imagine being Mary or Joseph in that instance. Imagine you're a parent here and, and you bring a child up for a dedication on a Sunday morning. And before I pray for the child, I say, this child will be a sign that will be spoken against, and your own soul will be pierced too. Like, you'd just start crying. You'd be like, what a terrible pastor. What is he doing? But Simeon is speaking these words because there's something that he senses in this child, that that Jesus, yes, will become salvation. He will become the answer to all of the hopes and fears, but he will also cause people to stumble, and he will become a sign that will be spoken against. His life was just beginning, and already the shadow of death was hanging over him. And you can't read for any kind of stretch in the Gospels without running into someone who is speaking out against Jesus. So these words are spoken over him as a six-week-old child. And then let's just take a look at a few examples going through Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 4, a bunch of people tried to throw him off of a cliff. In chapter 5, they accused him of blasphemy. Again, in chapter 5, he is spo- they speak against him because his disciples didn't fast. In chapter 6, they speak out against him because his disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. Then for inviting a man to stretch out his hand and be healed on the Sabbath. They speak out against him when a sinful woman anointed his feet. Even his mothers and brothers speak out against him. They'd come and they try to talk some sense into him. All of these people speaking out against Jesus... The words of George Orwell came to my mind uh, from his novel 1984. There was truth, and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you were not mad. And here is Jesus, everyone speaking against him, everyone trying to correct him, everyone trying to steer his course differently. But he sticks to the truth, and he keeps on. And in Luke chapter 11, people accuse him of casting out demons with the power of the devil. In Luke 13, they speak out against him for healing a crippled woman on the Sabbath. In Luke 15, they accuse him and speak out against him because he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Simeon said that he will be a sign that will be spoken against. And if there's anything that typifies Jesus' life, it is that. Then we have Judas betraying him, Peter denying that he even knew him, the Pharisees seeking his death, and Pilate sentencing him to crucifixion. It was everyone. It was people from his hometown, members of his family, Pharisees, experts in the law, the high priest, Jewish leaders, the Roman authorities, Roman soldiers, the disciples, and even the criminal crucified beside him. They all spoke out against Jesus. And so the real question becomes, was there anyone who didn't speak out against Jesus? Some of you may, see, may have seen this article in the paper, this man's photo, uh, but a week and a half ago, the headline read, this man bought $540 in cookies so Girl Scouts could escape the cold. Isn't that great? What a story. He's got a cross around his neck. I'm just like, this is great. What a guy. Until he made the news the next week. Same picture, different headline. Man who went viral for buying $540 of Girl Scout cookies arrested in drug bust. Yeah, this guy was part of, like, a multi-million dollar, like, drug trafficking ring. No wonder he had $540 of cash to give to the Girl Scouts. Anyways, in Jesus' case, Jesus wasn't found out. Jesus wasn't found out for being someone that he wasn't. In fact, we were the ones who were found out because of who he was. Simeon's prophecy claimed that Jesus would be a sign that would be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. All of the ways that Jesus was rejected revealed the darkness of the human heart, and not just the human heart of first century Jerusalem, but of 21st century Waterloo. Now, I don't need to ask for a show of hands to see who wants the thoughts of their hearts revealed this morning. If I were to ask for a volunteer to come on up here and have the thoughts of your heart revealed for everyone, like, no one would volunteer for that. None of us want the thoughts of our hearts revealed, and yet this is what Jesus does. It's precisely what he does. In chapter after chapter, in story after story, he confronts us with his awe-inspiring love. One author writes that an example of positive change, like the life of Jesus, is almost as annoying as it is inspiring, for it puts the burden on us to do something about the problem. All right, so we read about this life that Jesus lived, and it's inspiring, but it's annoying because it means, ah, do I have to do something about this? You can't read the story of Jesus without being implicated in the drama yourself. When we walk through the story of Jesus in the season of Lent, it's not like, well, that was nice. I'm glad he did that. No, the whole thing is an invitation for us to do likewise, for us to join in on the story. It's not a story about someone else. It's a story about ourselves. Jesus shows us the potential inherent in each of our lives not to inspire worship so much as to inspire us to follow his lead, to do something about the problem. Of course, worshiping Jesus is a, is a good thing to do, but sometimes I think we do that instead of following him. We think that if we, if we can just worship Jesus, then we can get away without following him. I think he'd maybe rather start with us following him and then get along to the worship so that we don't miss out on it. I love this paragraph from Kierkegaard. He writes, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament, forget everything, except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? And yet Jesus lived this way. How did all of the speaking out against Jesus affect him? Did it dissuade him? Did it discourage him? Did it get him down? Did it steer him in a different direction? Did it prevent him from going where he knew he needed to go? I mean, did it even distract him at all from his road to the cross? Every one of those examples that I was reading from Luke's gospel, I mean, how did Jesus respond? He just kind of pushes by, pushes by, pushes by, keeps moving forward. Stanley Harros and William Willimon write that the cross is a sign of what happens when one takes God's account of reality more seriously than Caesar's. It's a true statement about Jesus' life. Because he took his Father's will... As being more significant than that of Caesar of Rome. He ended up on a cross, but the same is true for us. If we take God's account of reality more seriously than the account of our world, then we may end up walking the way to the cross as well. When one speaks truth, when one lives sacrificially, when one loves unconditionally, when one brings healing, when one forgives, when one lives in the way of Jesus, we walk a path that leads to the cross. Simeon said, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many, and right from the very beginning, people had to struggle with this. Not only the people who outrightly rejected him, but even the earliest believers, the earliest followers of Jesus. In First Peter, the apostle writes about those who were stumbling because they disobey the message. Yeah, Jesus would cause people to fall, but Peter goes on to say, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And so even though we want nothing less than to have Jesus reveal the thoughts of our hearts, we also know deep within us that there's nothing in life that we need more than for someone to tear down our facades, strip away our masks, and call us out into the light. One commentator on this passage from Luke 2 says that Christ is the sign of God's everlasting love to His people. All of this rejection, all of this being spoken against, all of this road to the cross, this persistence was an act of love and a demonstration of God's love. During the season of Lent, the idea is that we are preparing ourselves for the celebration of Easter by following in the footsteps of Jesus, being willing to walk where he walked. It's a heavy season in the church calendar. It's a time of the year where we say, we want to try to identify with this rejection with this constant betrayal, with these temptations that Jesus faced, and we want to keep pressing on, asking God to guide us along the way. Rob Bell says there's the struggle of not knowing your path when it isn't clear, but then sometimes there's the anguish of knowing it, knowing what the next right thing is and what it requires. See, sometimes that's the hardest thing. And that's what the season of Lent does for us. It invites us to do the next hardest thing, to take the next step forward on a journey to the cross. So in closing this morning, I'd like us to return to where we started, the temple. And pay attention to the words Jesus used while standing in the very same place where Simeon once cradled him in his aging arms all of those years earlier. This is from John chapter 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, "Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I'd like to invite you to stand. We'll close this part of our service in prayer. And as we do, a reminder that if you would like to linger, uh, you can join members of our pastoral care team in this corner for prayer. But Lord, as we stand in your presence here today, in the presence of a community of people God, we invite you to lead us through this season. We prepare to enter into this journey of Lent beginning on Wednesday. God, we ask that that we would be willing to do as you do, that whatever distractions come our way, whatever temptations come our way, that we would be willing to just turn them aside and keep moving forward to the cross. And that we would have as our inspiration and our encouragement along the way the reminder that you did this very thing, that when the temple was destroyed, you raised it again in three days, that you were willing to give your body, that you were willing to shed your blood as we've celebrated in communion already this morning. I pray that we would have these things in front of our eyes, so that as we enter this season, we would be willing to follow you all the way to the cross and beyond. Be with us now as we gather around tables to discuss this morning's theme. Go with us through the remainder of our day. In Christ's name, amen.